Hello, welcome to the second BDP podcast series called Design for Inclusion. My name is Haley Ray Denal Atkinson, and my pronouns are she, her. I identify as a biracial, mixed black and white, abled cisgender woman, and I'm an accessibility specialist working with Human Space, an inclusive design consultancy of BDP's Toronto studio. In this series, we discuss topics related to designing for a more inclusive world, from exploring gender equity through our buildings and public spaces, to design that reflects race, color, and culture in the built environment, and how to design a hybrid and inclusive workplace. Why build barriers to accessibility when you can design for inclusion? Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to the Design for Inclusion podcast, where this week we're exploring design that reflects race, color, and culture in the built environment. We'll discuss how we can challenge default norms and nimbyism, and we'll also welcome the unique experiences of our panel as we explore solutions to uphold the social determinants of health and tools to create inclusive narratives and visualizations contributing to the realization of inclusive spaces for all. Joining me for our conversation today is Daniel Walder, Architect Associate from BDP's London Studio. Hi. Francis Hahn, Associate from BDP's Toronto Studio. Hello. And Esther Yaboa, Architectural Assistant from BDP's Sheffield Studio. Hi. Design often considers the default human to be male, heterosexual, cisgender, abled, middle class, and white. How can we challenge default norms to create inclusive spaces for all? This is perhaps something that I've I've thought about quite a lot through the lens of of race in particular, um, and I think it's interesting how you can often see in our towns and cities that the the the, the kind of spaces that we create have been designed historically by white middle class men, um, and that's often evident in the kind of historical references. So, I think the history of architecture that is taught focuses very much on the white middle class history of architecture and kind of erases um, some cultures Uh, and I think so by erasing those cultures it makes it quite difficult for people to kind of place themselves in the lineage of of the way that their towns and cities have evolved and therefore find it hard to place themselves in continuing that conversation and continuing that evolution and so I think if we can perhaps broaden our knowledge of history and historical precedent to include a much wider range of cultures then perhaps we can create more inclusive spaces going forward i love how you said daniel there you said place ourselves in the lineage and that's a really interesting way to think about buildings um that really it's part of that's sort of broader historical belonging as well and then the idea that we could continue through wider education so we could actually just pull in all these other strains of history in order to place ourselves within those spaces. Yeah, I guess because I, I think that's often I think where a sense of pride comes from is that that sense of belonging to something bigger. And that's both bigger now, but bigger historically and, and in the future. So, yeah, I guess if a sense of belonging and I guess a sense of pride in a place are linked. Uh, so, yeah I, I, yeah, I just think that's really important. Yeah, I thought about this question in terms of, um, in Toronto, a lot of projects that we end up working on are private sector projects. And so the idea that um, we can't really create inclusion if we're just followed, following market forces, as in we're not creating places for everybody um, if it's about competition, because essentially if it's competition for, at, for resources 
and that gains people some form of equity so they're able to buy their homes or these um, condominiums here in Toronto that is creating spaces for them. And really, um, I think that in as many places and sites and arenas as possible, if we can reduce competition, um, so bring things out of the private sector and into the public sector, um, and really treat diversity as an asset within those realms. I think that that's how we do it. Yeah, I often wonder um, about architects if they can't build for inclusivity and they can't build sustainably and they can't build for um, for a building to actually perform its function. Are they actually good architects? Is sort of just if it's a pretty building, but only the tall white man is welcome there, then you haven't really done your job and it's a useless building. Um, so until it's almost you're a bad architect unless you can um, design inclusively and design for multiple people then you don't really have the respect that you should probably get yeah I guess in a way it's important to recognize that we as designers can only really design through our own lens and it's it's only with uh, lots of conversations as as part of the design process and a, a like genuine kind of listening that you can then kind of connect with others. So I, I guess it's important not to kind of pretend to be something we're not and, and actually just accept that you can only design from your own perspective. And yeah, you can kind of listen and really kind of engage with people in the process and to create more inclusive spaces. Yeah. I love that you said listen there, Daniel, because I think that um, looking at kind of looking ahead to some of the, the questions that Haley Ray has sent us, that listening really comes up a fair bit in terms of um, how we're going to address these things. I think it'll be a little bit of a thread we can follow through this. How can we ensure that, you know, while designers may be open to listening, that they're in fact accountable to what they've heard? in implementing um, those lessons learned into the design itself? I think it probably starts with um, the base, as in the the first set of people who are in the team and what their diversity, because if you've got a bunch of males, white males, trying to build for a multicultural community, they're not going to have the same perspective as someone else. And it's maybe not just as simple as adding a token person of color but if it is limited to three white dudes then um maybe they public consultations there are ways of broadening it out but i think one of the problems is um acknowledging um that you have your own personal ignorance uh architects i think um often are wonderfully arrogant um in that they think that they can bring real change and sometimes that's not their idea of change is not always what's appropriate um so in (laughs) i'm i just graduated from university um and in our second year we were looking at different cities we were studying different cities and i got tokyo but some people got south africa and i was very excited because i lived in ghana i've lived in ghana for all my life um and I was very excited to see what they would do with South Africa. Cause like, oh yeah, you know, we've got friends from South Africa. And I went to a Pan-African school. <laughs> um, and it was very much um, how I thought, I suppose, it, it would be slightly scathing, slightly um, dismissive of 
um, the history and the role that certain things, political things, would um, provide that sort of perspective. So they completely, almost completely ignored the role that apartheid would have had in dividing um, up different plots of land and how that would um, develop Cape Town itself. Um, And it was very interesting that they did not take on that at all. And of course, their response was then to bring modernization, bring change and, you know, improve it when it it's not really the response you should probably get from it. It was just slightly tone deaf. And I think that's often, if you don't ask any questions and if you don't talk to anyone else outside of your group of people, the responses you're going to get, it's going to be so shallow. It's going to be irrelevant. I agree with that. I think that it's so easy, well, in all of our lives, to take the easy road. And that that easy road can... Um, be a design solution. And then it's not really a solution, as you said before. Um, in so many ways, it's about tackling the really hard things and the hard conversations. It's hard to design when you have so many people to think of. It's hard to design when you're thinking about the people that aren't in the room. You're not just pleasing the two clients you have with you, but you're acknowledging everybody that's involved as well as those people's ancestors that's hard and i think that in some design processes i've been in sometimes those client meetings feel like rubber stamp meetings that we're really just there to check off a box and then we're moving on and then i've been involved with other processes where the the we have a meeting and the product does not move forward because we did not get that consensus in the room that we needed um, and so we have another meeting and it is that it is so incredibly slow to design for everybody. And in terms of a service-based business where we're talking about fees, um, it's very difficult to want to approach that and to approach it seriously and meaningfully. I think, I think it's really interesting there that you referred to the voices that aren't in the room, because I think often on a project you'll hear um, people say things like oh we've got lots of well-heeled clients in this uh, residents in this area that we need to kind of consider in the design process and you know they mean kind of wealthier residents and I in that situation sometimes think well what about the not so well-heeled residents do we not care about their voices Mm -hmm. but I think often what they mean is that you know there are going to be some wealthier people around with louder voices more time to dedicate to to public consultation etc and that and that can make things quite difficult so i think we have a responsibility to as you say represent the voices or try to find ways of reaching the people who who aren't in the room yeah um, and kind of broaden out the 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 range of voices that we're hearing during a design process because otherwise you just design through a very specific lens you know some people are ignored and then that can have you know terrible consequences for those communities yes And in some ways it makes our jobs easier if we ignore the people that aren't in the room, because then we can get the approval that we need to move forward. We can make our projects successful. But if we go back to um, uh, Esther's earlier statement about, is it really successful if it's not designing for everybody, then in in the long run, we're failing. And it's better to kind of tackle those hard things at every point. 
I'm going to use the idea of um, public consultation, which I think I've heard um, brought up from from each of you in various ways and the way in which we um, consider perhaps the limitations of our individual lenses um, and and the uh, essential need to just be more open, listen, have those conversations um, and move us on to the idea of NIMBY, an acronym for the phrase, not in my backyard, which is a characterization of opposition by residents to proposed developments in their local area, as well as support for strict land use regulations. How do we challenge NIMBYism during public consultation and or throughout the design process? I guess a really interesting thing about in that phrase is not in my backyard, is kind of whose backyard is that? Because, you know, typically... There are lots of different communities, you know, particularly in, in London, you know, where where we are at the moment, um, that are kind of living integrated with one another. So the idea that one particular group can speak on behalf of everyone and, you know, say things like not in my backyard is is nonsense. And, it, you know, it comes back to that kind of um, thinking about the voices that aren't represented um, and making sure that um the kind of attitudes towards development are much more representative and much more inclusive so i think yeah n- nimbyism is one of those things that very much uh panders to the well-heeled louder wealthier residents often and then um kind of has negative consequences for perhaps those that aren't quite so wealthy great um so i'd like to pull back um, and, and think about something, Daniel, that you said earlier about, you know, our sense of belonging and our our pride, um, both with recognition for our history, but also pride for our future. Um, and thinking about the question, um, so gentrification, revitalization, refinancialization, and urban renewal tends to erase Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And how can we begin to think about how the inclusive design process helps to create a sense of belonging for these individuals, for these communities um, in new buildings and public spaces. I mean, I, I would say that um, first of all, it comes down to the the teams that are designing, ha- having better representation. And, you know, that's a very complex issue that, you know, I think in many ways you kind of, sometimes you have to see it to be it. Um, but also I would say as as well as the teams that are kind of designing places and spaces, there's also a question of where the money's coming from, which is often uh, controls what is designed. So you kind of have perhaps the, the kind of gatekeepers, if you like, to the to the architectural profession and to, to planning, etc., that are kind of making quite important decisions about what is and what isn't designed. Um, so I think perhaps if we have a kind of better democratization of the way things are conceived the way things are approved then perhaps we can include more people i think a good example of that is what's happened in the music industry um particularly in the uk with the uk grime scene and when when you had the kind of advent of things like youtube and people like jamal edwards setting up sbtv that created a platform for lots of kind of undiscovered talent and then that platform was kind of taken and spawned this kind of music scene that is essentially kind of black people taking responsibility for their own narratives, telling their own stories and telling it to the world. So we need our kind of own 
moment, our own SBTV moment, perhaps in architecture, where we have a better platform for a wider range of architects. There's always a big problem when you need money to do your job and the money comes from somewhere and that they have a certain say on how um, you're supposed to design and you yourself have a responsibility to other people and it's, it's, it's a sad circle that you have to sort of run round on because your client can veto it if they say, no, I would prefer this place to be a white-only um, place in theory with freedom in speech and freedom of everything. That's not, it's not implausible, but I think it's more the responsibility to say no because you can just say, I won't do this project and it's not going to happen type of thing, but someone else is going to have to do it. I thought about this question really differently. Um, I think that I sort of thought about the word gentrification and thinking about it from the racialized groups that are in that term BIPOC. And I know in talking to an Indigenous consultant on a project we had here, he really resisted the term BIPOC um, because he, he really believed that we so often are using that terminology to forget the individuality of the groups that are within that term. And this is especially true, I think, when we're talking about um, uh, creating belonging in cities in Canada, especially, or gentrification, because Indigenous peoples were forcibly removed from any cities or towns within Canada. And that was kind of a forced erasure. And so the question of gentrification is kind of hollow in an arena where really the loudest voices in the indigenous groups are talking about land back. Um, and kind of reconciliation is not about creating places where, where there might be indigenous belonging. It's about giving actual land back to people and so this makes me think um one about the project that i'm working on here in toronto which is the indigenous hub and in that case there was a parcel of land um relatively small within a cityscape it's 2.4 acres i believe and the provincial government gave it to anishinaabe health um, which is a group that has aspired for a very long time to build a healthcare center for indigenous peoples in toronto um, and there's multiple other examples of this happening, albeit very, very slowly. But really, I think that Indigenous groups would t would talk about land back as reconciliation, as opposed to trying to carve out spaces within the public sphere that everybody else is trying to carve out. Yeah, I mean, I, I would really agree with you in terms of kind of saying that the, the term BIPOC or in, in the UK, we would see say BAME is quite problematic because it assumes the default is therefore white and everyone else is other and that, and that does kind of as you say lead the, to this kind of oversimplification of what the the BAME or the BIPOC community want as though it's this one homogenous thing um, but at the same time it's kind of where we are at the moment and I although it's imperfect I do think it's it has some kind of value in recognizing as a first step perhaps that there are differences that need to be kind of uh, kind of acknowledged that's a very brilliant way of thinking of it i really appreciate the perspective 
I think um, the conversation on terminology, I think we can all probably agree that Yes, it's constantly evolving. Um, and in the same way that we begin to think about BIPOC as, as an acronym for groups that are um, undoubtedly, uh, you know, deserving of um, their recognition. It, it makes me think about our conversation in the previous podcast um, and, and the focus there on uh, the LGBT community and and the way that that acronym has continuously evolved um and you know there's both there's both strength in the in the full acronym um but there needs to be focus and attention on each of those individual um parts that contribute to that collective as well yeah and i know in many ways our discussion here isn't really about our acronyms but i think that i really want to we acknowledging it is great that 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 is a term that is where we are now and is evolving, I think is essential to the discussion because in many ways, um, the urban spheres and the landscape that we're in is also at a moment where it's, where we're all evolving. You know, there's, there is some level of momentum and um, in terms of change, and we're here to kind of move that forward a little bit faster. Just going back to something that we we touched on earlier, which was to do with the money, essentially, where does the money come from and therefore the the power that has. Obviously, I think it's really important that we have to recognize that what we do is, you know, as architects and designers is so rooted in the reality of the, you know, the real world, the economy, etc. And you need capital in order to build things. And so I think that perhaps one of the ways in that our built environment can be more inclusive is by perhaps more kind of democratized ways of funding projects, you know, um, and kind of, of pooling resources and kind of getting the kind of land ownership, for example. So things like um, community land trusts, which are essentially kind of groups of people coming together to, to acquire a piece of land and then keep the land and the value of that land within the group and people come in and out etc it's a kind of much more democratized way of designing and developing places and i think that then through you know through the, that economic mechanism could perhaps then lead to a, a more inclusive places so places like christiania in um, in copenhagen is a really interesting example and those community land trusts are they then developed yeah sorry yeah so so you so you collectively kind of acquire the land and then you can develop property on that land i think i think the the key is to do with how then property is then bought and sold within that because you don't take the value of the land with you so i think that that's the key difference so obviously when you buy a normal house most of the value that you're buying is actually in the land mm -hmm. and so it's it's a much more kind of open and democratic way of developing places i'm trying to think of an example here in canada that is that has the same flavor of community um because certainly um when we build condominiums here what ends up happening is that the condominium is built by a developer everyone buys their units and then the condominium board is uh takes over the ownership um but it does certainly does not have the same idea of community wrapped into it. It's still very much based on 
um, individual assets, which I think is problematic. And essentially extract, extracting value from the land yes you know by the developer that's the that's the key goal isn't it really it's not about creating communities exactly exactly i like that it sounds similar to um sort of a vernacular village typology where it's sort of some great grandfather owns all the land and all the family comes and lives on the land and they take their plot for their five children their five children expand and have more land and it's sort of it's almost like you're going back in time to pick up on what we already knew and just using it again. I quite like that. Mm. And, it, and it, for me, it places the the value of that place in its function as a as a place to live and as a community, not as an asset. The minute it becomes an asset is when it kind of, you know, it ceases to necessarily be about community as its primary focus. And also to yeah to bring it back to what you the your first comment Daniel when you're talking about the idea of lineage um and if we're thinking about um lineage in kind of a broader way other than just kind of white male colonial for us and we're thinking about um land as ancestral and land as uh um as kin to us not simply assets, then it absolutely makes sense that we're not, it doesn't become block 20 in an urban, you know, and it doesn't have a number associated with it in the same way. It is a place and um, it's a place that is connected in terms of everything that is on that site, right? Is part of its identity. I, I guess a slight conflict I have in my mind thinking about land and communities in that way though as kind of ancestral is what does that then mean for kind of the evolution of places and the kind of integration of different communities so i think one of the great things about london for example is that it's it's you know it's kind of been contributed to over hundreds of years by lots of different communities that have come and gone and so it's kind of how do you create the or keep the sense of a place whilst still allowing for that kind of diversity that dynamic nature of the the population coming and going yeah and i think that certain cities achieve that right i think that probably if you look at new york or you look at la it certainly has they all have these um they're informed by the communities that take them over in many ways um I think that Toronto doesn't necessarily have that in the same way, even though it is so multicultural, um, because it really is that colonial grid that is cut it up into little squares, um, which is so in opposition to, um, to the way that the First Nations, you know, look at that land and um, have lived on that land for many thousands of years. But I think to totally disregard um, that that in itself, it being cut up in its own little grids is a part of the history. It may be, it's not appropriate to completely disregard it because just to, to say, uh, I don't know how to phrase this, but um, history good or bad, is still history and it gives the place a sense of space or it gives a city a sense of place 
um, in the coastal um, cities of Ghana. Um, it's all colonial buildings and it's all colonial um, castles and things like that. And it's very much, it's its own identity. Um, and sure, it was slave castles and it has its own very negative history. Um, it still is, you can't look at it and say it's anywhere else. It is Cape Coast of Ghana. It's it's got its identity, even though it's a negative one. Um, and I think moving forward, it's, it's the balance between respecting history and not condoning it um, because history has shown itself to be terrible. We are terrible human beings most of the time um, <laughs> and history has always proven that. Um, but it's, I think, the architect's responsibility to hold on to that history and give it its significance without it becoming sort of everything i don't know i don't know it's it's but we're like i think when we were talking before it's responding to place and time not just place so we're thinking about where we're at at the moment where we're heading towards um and in many ways we're doing that kind of visionary reaching towards maybe the direction we want to turn history in rather than just staying rooted in um the block that we're we're stuck in right now Using what you've said, Francis, about um, responding to place and time and, you know, as designers having the capaci capacity to inform both our present and responding to the times, as well as sort of informing the future through our built form, as well as um, the narratives and visualizations that go along with those built forms. Um, I'd like to ask, how do inclusive narratives and visualizations contribute to the realization of those inclusive built environments in the present and into the future? And perhaps what tools have we used to, to help respond to that? I think that's a really, um, a really tricky question because, and, and I'm kind of reflecting on this, I think perhaps the reason for that is because in, in my own work, I don't think the, uh, the narratives necessarily have been particularly inclusive so I can think of very few examples where there has been a kind of concerted effort to to listen um, and to kind of respond to the, the narratives of a you know a, a diverse community in a in the designs and in the way that designs are represented so I think perhaps um, architecture and design in the UK is still a very white dominated space so from my perspective it's it's quite difficult to kind of think of any any examples where there's been kind of successful um, kind of inclusion of a, a more diverse narrative. Um, so Vicky Casey from our um, Sheffield office um, helped set up BDP's um, people library um, and it's 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 simple as a concept. It's um, illustrator sort of placeholders of people um, of various colors, various shapes, sizes, ability, um, and it's just it's just an illustrator document. And it's the whole concept's got like a whole document stating that um, it's important to even in the images that you send out to clients to encourage that it's not just white people in um 
in a line sort of smiling at the camera um but that it gives importance to a more diverse community even if the community isn't necessarily that diverse we're in england <laughs> and some cities in england aren't the most diverse that we're even designing for but it's more giving the opportunity for it to be a place for other people a place for everyone um and i, I quite like it i i very much like using it um <laughs> it's a very helpful tool um but it's a small intervention but it's also a very big one um because it feels very simple but it has a great impact in sort of everything that you're putting out this is the first visual that you see it's got everyone in the front everyone's smiling or not smiling it doesn't really matter it's just that everybody is represented and it's, it's good yeah i've had a chance to look at that library too and it is amazing how small a step but how large an impact it has um, or it can have and in so many ways as designers what we're doing is we are creating the narrative um, you know, our clients will come to us and they'll give us some statistics and they'll tell us who the demographic is maybe. And then our job is to create the narrative of the, of the space. And it's so important to get into that narrative, all the possible people that might ever use this space. And, um, we are so adamant, um, to include um, wherever possible. Um, we quite often work with external 3D visualization firms, quite often that are based um, uh, overseas. And what we get back is these renderings that have, you know, very white, very hetero, very able-bodied people in them. And we are pushing back to them and saying, no, we want someone, you know, someone who's differently abled. We want some tones of skin. We want something else. Um, and which is so interesting because that is someone from another place that would also be racialized in this environment, feeding back to us what they think that we want. Um, and we're saying, and you know, to take that step and say, no, 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 in include yourself here as well as everyone else that might use the space. Um, and which kind of gives you a sense that we, we've swung so far to one end and really to bring the narrative back to that lovely, well, um, optimistic and hopeful one where we really are creating these spaces that are for everybody, not only in the beautiful picture, but in the function and the use and the sense of belonging. I mean, I think that's so true. I think it could be tempting to think that the the people that you use in your images isn't necessarily important, but I think we all kind of recognize the power of an image in, in the in the design process. And, you know, you can sit in a room full of architects talking about the shade of the brickwork for half an hour, but not necessarily think about the, the people and the activity that, that's in an image. So I think, yeah, it's definitely as important in in many ways the the life and the activity that's in a in a space in an image uh, you know as much as the shade of the brickwork or the the quality of the light and all those other things and we are creating those images for our clients we're creating those images i mean if we're even if we're not actually creating those 3d renderings we're creating the narrative that that the client is going to see and then the world is going to see afterwards so 
um, we do have a very important point. I think it does also then feed through to the design moves that you make. So I can, I can actually think of an example where I was working on some university accommod accommodation um, and we had an image of a kind of common space, you know, a kitchen dining space. Um, and the, the client picked up that a lot of the the perhaps the cultural references that we were using in terms of what student life was were a bit dated and perhaps not um, matched to their own student population. So maybe the focus was around alcohol and, and things. And actually they said, you know, we have quite a diverse community here and the focus is a lot more around food. It's not around alcohol and, you know, big groups coming together and around food was their kind of particular focus. And so that did then lead to a kind of change in the emphasis of some of the spaces, you know, on food and those kind of social comings together, if you like. So that I think as well as images, it also can have an impact on design and, and design moves. Yeah, absolutely. That reminds me of a similar experience I had also with um, a university and academic client where so much, we did the same thing. We thought they're just like typical university kids. They're just, you know, they're maybe... 19 years old and they drink a lot and they would eat french fries for lunch and they said no actually most maybe of our guilty population... of our own experience <laughs> yes exactly um much of the population is actually um young married mothers who are leaving their kids with relatives or in care for the day and they're bringing their food with them they're not buying food we actually need like a bank of 25 microwaves so people can heat up their food and really the experience in this um, kind of shared eating space is bringing together your own food and sitting with a group and sort of enjoying the food, which was, again, like we brought this assumption to the table and our client was educating us. I guess there's perhaps a kind of a, a generational shift as well there. So not, not only thinking about different communities that we're designing for in, in terms of, you know, culture and race and religion and all those other things but also just age and I guess I've kind of growing to terms with the fact that I'm no longer a young person and so <laughs> when I go into a university and I design in a university environment I still imagine that students are like me I'm still in my own mind 21 maybe <laughs> and uh, you kind of have to yeah listen and, and acknowledge things have changed you know an enormous amount in and will you know will continue to change so i guess it's a kind of reminder even in an environment where you feel familiar and you think you know yeah to, to keep keep listening and making sure that you're not assuming yeah absolutely again not only thinking through your own lens it's, it's exciting though because you get to you're constantly learning you're constantly finding new things and if you can do it respectfully and with attention to detail it's it's a fun process life is a continuing evolutionary process and it's, it's exciting world we live in to be able to learn new things and you grow older and you get new perspectives and you can go back and look at other people who have different perspectives and it's a very exciting world to especially the technological age you can access so many different people from so many different places and it's, it's never been better time than to than now to get fully into including everyone because we've got the resources for it might as well use them 
Daniel Francis Esther, we greatly appreciate your time and contribution to this conversation. Thank you for sharing your experiences related to this topic. Um, we've certainly got a lot to share with what we've learned today in studio and with our collaborators. Thank you to you all and be well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.